right, good morning, everyone. How we doing? Great. Hey, if you got a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that. You know where we'll be, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, just like last night. Uh, and we'll continue on uh, looking at this passage. Again, asking the question, what does the God of the universe have to say to me this weekend? God, you, God brought you here on purpose and for a purpose. Uh, and I believe that purpose might even continue to be revealed this morning. Now, I want to start this morning with a simple survey. There's no trick questions here. This is um, not church, but it's camp, and it's church camp, so we're going to do some confession. You've got to be honest, okay? I want show of hands on this question. I want you to think of your bedroom back home, and I want you to think of your bedroom in your mind's eye right now, and I want you to ask the question, who here tends to have a very, 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 very messy bedroom? Hands in the air. Okay. All right, who here has like a clean bedroom? You are like, it's, oh, nice, nice. You people, I've always looked up to you. That's never been me. All right, that's not me naturally at all. Now, let, let, let me extend the question, uh, and this isn't going to be true for all of you, but, but only for those of you who are a bit older. Um, if you drive and have a car or your parent's car and you drive it, who here keeps the interior of that car immaculate? Like there's never trash, it's always wiped down. Okay, all right. Again, I look up to you so much because that's not me. Where are my people if you drive who your car is just generously a hot mess? Okay, yeah, that's me. And here's the deal with my car. Like here's what happens. I never set out to make it a hot mess. I'm never like, you know what I'm gonna do this week? I am gonna take a bunch of cups and wrappers and leftover food and toss it into my car. I never think that way. What happens is like I'm driving along, I get my $1 McDonald's Diet Coke and I finish it and I toss it in the back because that's where trash goes. Or I'm nibbling on something and the crumbs kind of fall all over the floor and I do my famous, I'll get to that later, right? And so my car just starts to fill up with trash and mess, not because I decided I'm gonna go make my car messy, but because along the way, these little things just kind of happened, and I never really dealt with it. And so it tends to happen for me. And I'm, if you have a messy room or a messy car, maybe this happens to you. From time to time, I open up the door to my car, and I look inside of my vehicle, and I am filled with disgust at myself. Like, I look inside my car, and I go, I did this. Like, I want to blame my kids, but they're always in my wife's car. I want to blame someone else, but there's only me to blame. And I am filled with disgust at my car because it's a mess, and I know I made it. And so what I'll do in those times is I'll just kind of go furious clean. Like, I don't like gently clean. I'm like, I'll throw this away, throw this away. I'm wiping things down. And I just really try to bring it back to wholeness. Now, here's what I think. I think some of you have wandered into camp this weekend. And you never intended to do it. But little patterns, little practices, little habits little destructive things in your life, if we can use the word the Bible uses for this, little sins have crept into your life, little things you swore you'd never do, little patterns, little directions, little ways you've slipped, little ways you've backed away from God have slipped into your life. You didn't set out to do it intentionally. It wasn't your intention. You didn't say in the last year, I want to make sure I fill my life with sin, but it's happened. And just like me, when I opened the car door, and occasionally I am just looking in filled with disgust at what has been piled up in my car, there should be moments in our life where we look inside of ourselves and we are not disgusted with us as God made us because God made us in his image, but we are disgusted with the sin that we see inside of ourselves. So, so here's what I hope for some of you this weekend. I, I know that for some of you, there have been sins and practices and patterns and destructive things piling up in your life. And my hope for you this morning is that you might for the first time in a long time see those sins for what they are be filled with, filled with disgust, not for yourself, but for your sin, for the wickedness that resides within you. And more importantly, that you would actually look 
to change it. So here's what I don't want you for you this morning. I do not want you to just be filled with regret. I want you to know that regret changes nothing. Like if through the course of this sermon, you're just filled with regret and guilt and shame and you feel awful about yourself, I want you to know that actually has no power to change your life. It'd be like me looking at my messy car being like, yeah, that is terrible. And then I walk away and do nothing. See, I want you to know regret has no power to change your life. But there is something else that has power to change your life. And right from the beginning of the sermon, I want you to know what that is. It's another R word. It's not the word regret. It is the beautiful biblical word repentance. And this morning, what I want to call everyone in this room toward, in some way or another, is to repent of the sin that has piled up in your life. So again, Ephesians chapter 4 is where we're going to look at this morning. It's going to say this. Again, Ephesians 4.17, right? We looked at this verse last night. It says, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Now, last night we covered one verse. This morning we're going to get real ambitious. Two verses. That's what we're going to cover this morning. Two verses. We did 17, we're going to do 18 and 19, and here's what we're going to see. If you're taking notes, you can know where the entire sermon's going this morning at the very beginning. I want you to see this. We talked about the sin that piles up in our life, and I believe there's three causes to the sin that pile up in our life. What we'll see in verse 18 is this, that we think wrong. Write that down, we think wrong. In verse 18, we'll also say that we feel wrong. And then in verse 19, we'll see that we do wrong. We think wrong, we feel wrong. We do wrong, and because of that, sin piles up in our life. I want you to see this here. Verse 18, here's how it begins, just the first few words. It says, they, again, the people who are far from God, not walking with God, it says, they are darkened in their understanding. They're darkened in their understanding. Now, this is like a Bible way of talking about they believe foolish things that aren't true. Their mind is not thinking the right way. And because they don't have the right thoughts in their mind, because they think wrong, they're actually going to end up doing wrong. Uh, again, the first thing is we think wrong. We think the wrong thoughts. And here's what I want you to know, that when it comes to the sin in your life, when it comes to the destructive and wicked patterns and practices and habits in your life, it starts with you thinking wrong, thinking the wrong things in your mind. And here's what I want you to know the primary wrong thing you think about when you sin is. Now, you've probably never actually said it this way. You've probably never actually put this out loud. But here's what happens to every one of us when we sin. There are three words, three words that we basically speak to God. The three words that define our sin is this. Anytime I do something that I know God has told me not to do, and I do it anyway, I am basically looking at God saying these three words. Write it down. God, I know better. That's the three words of sin. And that's where we go wrong in our minds. We look at the God of the universe, and we have the gall to say, I know better. Now listen, I know you've never actually said that out loud to God, but that is exactly how you and I behave. We look at the God of the universe, we know what he has to say, and we think we know better. It's like my three children, um, who I love dearly, and yet there are things they just don't know. A lot like my 10-month-old Hope. Um, she has this nasty little habit that all little 10-months-old have, where she's crawling around the house. And, and here's what, if you have ever had a little baby in your house, here's what they love to do. They love to put anything and everything in their mouth. And so she's crawling along, and she finds little crumbs on the floor, and she's just picking them up. And maybe it's been like bread that's been sitting there for three days. She'll shove it in her mouth. 
She'll find the remote control and she'll just shove it into her mouth. The other day I rolled up on her, she was eating my shoe, okay? And I was like, don't eat my shoe, and I had to pull it away from her. Now why did I pull my shoe away from her? Is it because I hate her and want her to have a miserable life? No, it's because I love her and I know better, and I know that her chewing on my shoe is not going to help her at all. It's going to hurt her. Oh, you got my two-year-old son. We do bath time most nights at 6 p.m. You know what my two-year-old son loves to do during bath time? Every time I look away, he takes a little cup in the bath, and he loves to just take a little swig of it. Yeah, yeah, that's disgusting, right? But he looks at me with this look like, what's she going to do about it? So I'm like, I'm going to take that cup away. That's what I'm going to do. But what does he do? He's drinking bath water. Why? I have no idea why. He's two. And so I look at him and I go, don't drink the bath water. Why? Because I hate him and I don't want him to have fun in the bath? No. Because I know however much fun this is in his little brain, it's going to hurt him. It's going to make him sick. Or you got my five-year-old. Now, my five-year-old doesn't put shoes in her mouth or drink bath water, but you know what she does? Um, Almost every day around 11 o'clock, when we're starting to think about what lunch is going to be, she has one request. And we give in to this request way too often, so this is our little problem we've created in her life. But the one thing my daughter wants for lunch every single day is a vanilla milkshake. That's what she wants. Preferably from Chick-fil-A, but she'll settle for McDonald's. Like, that's what she wants. She wants herself a milkshake. If that girl had her way, the only thing in her diet would be milkshakes. That's all she would have at all times forevermore. And so sometimes I have to look at my five-year-old little princess and say, no, we are not going to have a milkshake today. And it devastates her. You get tears, you get all kinds of, oh, she's so frustrated. Now, why do I say no to milkshakes every single day? Is it because I hate her? No, I love her. But I know if her entire diet consists of milkshakes, it will very quickly lead to her destruction. And so what's my point? My three children have these little patterns they think they can do in this world, and they think they know better. They think I'm stepping in and just like robbing them from all of their fun. When in truth, they don't know better. Who knows better? I do. I know better. Because I'm their dad, and I know better, and I know what's best for them. I am not taking these things away from them because I hate them. I'm taking them away because I love them. And I'm telling them not to do it, not because I want to squish out all the joy in their life, but because I know what leads to actual joy. Do you know that God does the same thing for you? God does the same thing for me. Like all throughout the Bible, God lays out commands, like the way we are supposed to live. And I want you to know he does not do that to make your life miserable. God does not lay out commands in the Bible just to make you sad and miserable and lifeless. He gives you commands because he knows better and you don't. Like, Do you know that there are commands in the scripture that command you to let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth? And yet we live in like this super coarse culture, like popular culture is so vulgar and coarse with like curse words and words that are said about women or words that are said about people. And we just kind of have these gnarly words that's in all of our music. And so some of you have actually bought into that and you call yourself a follower of Jesus. And yet the words that come out of your mouth sometimes are unspeakably foul. And yet, you know what some of you do? You're like, ah, it's just like God knows my heart. It's no big deal. It's whatever. It's just words. I'm not hurting anyone. Everyone's saying it. It's no big deal. And here's what you're doing. You're like, God, I know you said no unwholesome talk out of my mouth, but I know better. I know better. And here's the deal. God has a command, and it's not to crush you. It's not to make you miserable. It is for your joy. Or do you know that the scriptures just clearly teach 
that sex is reserved for one man, one woman in the context of a covenant marriage? And yet some of you, some of you, Call yourself a follower of Jesus, and yet you look at God and you know, I know that's the command, I know that's for, but me and my boyfriend, me and my girlfriend, we're basically married. We're going to get married someday. That's the plan. We're going to get married anyway. So it's really not that big of a deal. You know what you're doing? You're looking at the God of the universe, and you're saying, I know better. I just know better. Or you know what the scriptures say? Be totally sober-minded. You know the scriptures command you not to get drunk? Uh, and yet for some of you, there's this little thing in you that just says like, yeah, but everyone else is doing it. It's not really hurting. It. It's not a big deal. What is it? Who cares if you ingest? It's like a natural thing if I smoke weed. That comes out of the ground. Alcohol. It's like Jesus drank. So like, why shouldn't I? Like, you just kind of build up all this stuff. But you know what you're doing? You're just looking at the God of the universe and saying, I know you said don't get drunk, but I know better, God. I just know better. Or do you know that the scriptures actually command over and over and over again when it comes to the words we speak that we would not be gossips? Like, I know that's not often, like, one of the big sins we talk about, but do you know in the New Testament it is a big sin? And yet some of you have this thing where you're constantly gossiping, constantly talking about other people, maybe even up at camp already. There's been this gossip going on, this drama going on, and the scriptures command us not to engage in that. And yet for some of you, you just kind of look at God and be like, I know better. It's fine. I know how to run my life. You don't need to speak into it. So, see, ultimately, I want you to know that God does not give us commands to crush us, to make us miserable to make our lives boring. God gives us commands because he knows what's best for us. And what we see in verse 18 is this. Most people don't believe that. They're darkened in their understanding. They're foolish in the way they think. They actually think they don't need God and his commands because they know better. The back half of verse 18 goes on this way. It says, they're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts, the hardening of their hearts. So again, in verse 18, we saw that people think wrong, right? They don't think the right thoughts. And what not thinking the right thoughts leads us to do is to not feel the right things. We feel wrong. Now, now when we talk about feelings, sometimes we can kind of like dismiss those as Christians, like those don't matter. The New Testament is obsessed with what's going on in your heart, is obsessed with what you're feeling. Like the point of Christianity isn't just to believe intellectually all of the right things. It's that it makes its way down into your heart. And yet what this is going to say is there's a kind of heart that is softened to the things of God. But then do you see the words at the end of verse 18? It says that there is a hardening of their hearts. A hardening of their hearts. So what can often happen in your life if you think, I know better God, I'm going to do my own thing, is that your heart actually becomes hard toward God. So you are walking in your sin and it doesn't even bother you anymore. Like, it doesn't even bug you anymore. It doesn't bother you anymore. Sometimes people say, Brian, I don't know if I have a good relationship with God because I'm always struggling and wrestling with my sin. And I say to them, the fact that you're struggling and wrestling with your sin means you're in a great spot. It means that you are wrestling it to the ground. The person I'm concerned about is not the person who is wrestling with their sin. It's the person who has hardened their heart and is no longer even wrestling or fighting. And here's what we do. When we harden our heart toward God, it begins to atrophy our relationship with God. Now, how do you know your heart is being hardened? Here's how you know. You can be certain that your heart isn't being hardened if your response to your sin, when you sin and stumble in it, is repentance. You're turning from it. But I am concerned that your heart is being hardened if when you sin, you find yourself justifying your sin. 
Anytime you find yourself justifying, explaining, defending your sin, your heart is in the process of being hardened. It is like you are a defense lawyer for yourself, and you're constantly explaining why your sin is no big deal. It's fine. When you are defending, it is a sure sign that your heart is in the process of hardening. Can I give you the four defenses we like to use? The four justifications we love to use for our sin? Here's the first one. You can write this down. It's not hurting anyone. It's not hurting anyone, so why is it a big deal? It's not hurting anyone, so why are you making a big deal of it? Why, Brian, why are you even talking about this? Why does my youth pastor talk about this? Why does the church even care? It's not hurting anyone. And so you decide to drink, and drink a ton, and drink to the point where you are just an alcoholic in high school. And if you don't think you can be a high school alcoholic, you haven't hung out with enough people in high school. Because that can absolutely happen, and so you're drinking. And here's the first thing. The first thing in this whole, like, it's not hurting anyone is, can I just convince you that your sin is absolutely hurting people, okay? Like, if you've somehow convinced yourself that your sin has no impact on the people around you, you are darkened in your understanding. You do not know what's going on. Your sin absolutely hurts people. But here's the deal. Even if in some fantasy world your sin wasn't hurting anyone, it's still hurting you. It's still damaging you. Or can we get to the other one people love to use with this, it's not hurting anyone thing? That's pornography. And listen, I just want to stand here and confess to you, when I was your age, this was a problem for me. I just don't want to pretend that this has never been an issue, and I don't want to heap judgment upon you if it is you. Both men and women, young men and women in this room, I know this is a problem for many, many, many of you. And I loved to say this when I was in high school. I was following Jesus and yet had this part of my life that was secret. And here's what I loved. It's not hurting anyone. But can we just say this clearly, as clearly as we possibly can? Pornography absolutely does hurt people. It hurts the women who are trapped in that industry. It hurts the people who are sucked into that world. It absolutely causes pain. But even if somehow we could expel all of that hurt, it's still hurting me and it's still hurting you. Like someday, Lord willing, if you are married, it will impact you. It matters. That stuff sticks with you. And again, I'm not here to heap shame and guilt upon you. I'm here to invite you out of something that you might have been justifying in your life. Because you've convinced yourself it's not hurting anyone. But I need you to know it is hurting at least one person. And that person is you. Our first justification is this. It's not hurting anyone, so why is it a big deal? Our second justification is this one. Um, second justification, our first justification is it's not hurting anyone, so it, it's, it's really not that big of a deal. The second justification we love is this one, that nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. Like, yeah, Brian, I know, like, I know it's a sin issue. I know there's problems going in my life, but come on, give me a break. I'm only human, and nobody's perfect. And in some way, you've actually put your finger on this beautiful, true, biblical truth, and that's this, that Romans chapter 3 is going to say that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So outside of Jesus, nobody is perfect. But here's the problem. If you are using the fact that nobody is perfect to justify your sin, all it shows me is you don't understand that you're actually supposed to have a relationship with God, not just a responsibility for him. Like some of you think like nobody's perfect, and so you use that as an excuse to walk in whatever sin you want when you forget that you actually have a relationship with God. And to say nobody's perfect is an excuse for your behavior is to really show you don't know how relationships work. Like, let me just ask a question, and this is totally um, not, not a trick question at all here. Raise your hand if you would call yourself a bad texter. You're bad at it. You're just bad at returning texts. Terrible at, okay. Wow, there's more than you than I thought. Okay. So here's the deal. I want you to imagine you have a friend. And some of you are sitting next to that friend, so like, don't point, okay? Um, I want you to imagine you have a friend who is a bad texter, Okay. And again, don't, don't point, nudge, anything like that. Okay, so 
I want you to imagine you got this friend, they're a bad texter. Every time you text them, they don't respond. Every time you, they text you, you respond. It feels like this really lopsided, unequal relationship. You're putting in all this effort, and they're putting in none. I want you to imagine there's one night, it just breaks you, and you confront them. And you're like, hey, listen, I love you. You're my friend. I care about you. I seem to do everything for you. You seem to do nothing for me. You never respond to my text. You're never there when I need you to do it. You never show up. I'm just so frustrated with you. And imagine your friend looks back at you and goes, hey, well, listen, nobody's perfect. <laughs> would you be like, you know what? Excellent point. You don't know you went in. You would look at them and go, I know no one's perfect. I'm not asking you to be perfect. What I'm asking you to do is to put in some effort into this relationship. That's what you would do because that's how relationships work. And if you're going to have a relationship with God, here's what the gospel is all about. The gospel understands you are not going to be perfect this side of glory. That you are called to perfection, but you will never get there. And yet what God is looking for is not somebody who is perfect. But what God is looking for is someone who will lean in and turn and repent from their sin. Perfection is the aim, but the gospel is the truth that we're not going to be perfect. And yet God still calls us to come toward him in relationship. And so again, what I'm asking you to do is to say, to stop using the excuse, nobody's perfect, I'm just human. In the end, that is just you showing you don't understand what it means to have a relationship with God. Number one, we love the idea that's not hurting anyone. Number two, we love the idea that nobody's perfect. Number three, we, we love this one, no one's ever gonna find out. So again, I'm, I'm in high school, porn's an issue for me. And I loved to say, no one's ever gonna find out. No one's ever gonna find out. Can I tell you the first thing that's really true? Can we just be honest? Someone's going to find out. Someone somewhere is going to see through your smoke screen. Someone somewhere is going to see through all the walls you've constructed. It's also a really stressful lifestyle when you're living in such a way that you're trying to get no one to find out. Because every time someone picks up your phone and just says, hey, let me show you, you're like, oh, oh, oh. Every time someone peeks into your life just a little bit, you're trying to defend and make sure no one finds out. Anytime your mom asks about last weekend and what you did, you're always trying to diffuse and, and deflect and, and confuse. So in the end, no one's going to find out. But, but listen, here's what I want you to know. E even if you're right, and you are the first human in human history to keep it secret forever, you're the first one ever, you're amazing, you're the best there's ever been. Like in the end, it's still hurting you. But like here's been like the, the, the experience in my life. Um, so over the last couple of years, since 2019, uh, 2018, I turned 30 years old. Uh, and in 2018, I turned 30 years old, and 2019 hits, and I looked in the mirror and went, wow, I need to start taking care of my body, right? Like when I was 20, I could eat whatever, not really exercise and be fine. I hit 30, and I was like, oh, my. Uh, and so I started working out and trying to eat a little healthier. And so I'm trying to do all this, and I'm on this journey. Uh, and, and then I need you to know along the way, there's been a few weaknesses for me. Like I shared for my daughter. Daughter, it's milkshakes. Like, that's all she wants. For me, it's not milkshakes. I can look at a milkshake and be like, that is probably not the best choice for me on a daily basis outside of human leg. But, but, sorry, I digress. But, but, but here's the, my weakness. I need you to know. My weakness is the Toll House cookie dough. You guys know what I'm talking about? It comes in the tub. And I'm not talking about cooked cookies. Those are fine. I'm talking about the dough. And so here's what happens. My wife buys the Toll House cookie dough tub all the time because we entertain people at our house all the time. And my wife loves to make cookies even if the people coming over don't eat cookies because she thinks a house that smells like chocolate chip cookies is better than any other kind of house. And so she makes cookies all the time. And so she tells me when she gets the tub of cookie dough, hey, don't eat the cookie dough. This is for me to make cookies for our friends who are coming over tomorrow. And I go, totally, totally, no sweat. Then she goes to bed. <laughs> And I sneak downstairs and I go to the kitchen and I open the fridge and it gloriously shines upon me. And I go to the tub and I pull open the tub and it makes this amazing sound. 
thump, right? It comes open. And then I don't do a spoon or anything. I just go straight in with the index finger, and I'm eating it. And I'm, like, down there in my shame. I'm, like, this, like, little creature who's, like, must-time cookie dough. You know, like, middle of the night doing this. And then I put the tub back on sometimes. <laughs> so bad. Sometimes I even smooth out the top to make it look like my finger didn't go in it, right? And I put it back in the fridge, and she never knows. Now, the truth is, like, she knows, right? She opens it the next morning. is like, well, I'm, like, the children did it, right? Like, like But here's the deal. Even if she never found out, here's what we all know is true. The calories still count, right? It's not like I'm like, no, 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 no. No one ever heard about the calories, so it's free. Like, that's not how this works. That's not how the human body works. If I just secretly keep consuming Toll House cookie dough, I am not going to get in shape. And yet here's what all of us do with our sin. We're like, well, if no one ever finds out, I won't ever have to be embarrassed, and therefore it won't hurt me. And I just need you to know. It is hurting you. It's affecting you. I'm just here to stand before you and say, I don't even know your life. I don't know your sin. I don't know your story. I just know sin has never added anything to your life. It's never added anything good or lasting or beautiful or joyful. Like, it is affecting you. Our first justification, our first defense line is this, uh, that it's not hurting anyone. The second is this, that no one's perfect. I'm only human. The third is no one's ever going to find out. And here's the fourth one. The fourth and final one is simply this, that God's going to forgive me anyway. So it's no big deal. And you know what's beautiful about what you just thought? I'll actually give you something true. God is going to forgive you. The God of the universe will forgive you. He will forgive you for what you did. This is the beautiful truth of the cross of Jesus Christ. You can sin a thousand times, he'll forgive you a thousand and one times. This is the beautiful truth about the cross of Jesus and about the resurrection of our Lord. And yet here's what I want you to know. My issue with you sinning as a Christian is not that it will cost you your salvation. It won't. Like, on the authority of the word of God, I want to stand here and say that your sin cannot rob from you your salvation, but I want you to know that your sin can and will rob from you your joy. It will rob from you your peace. Your sin will never take away your salvation. That's secure in Jesus. But you can live in such a way that you are saved, you are right before God, and yet you are not experiencing the joy of salvation that God has given to you. Like, I want you to know your sin cannot steal your salvation, but it can rob from you your joy. Why is it that we don't sin even though God's going to forgive us? It's because we want to walk in a way that honors God and in a way that is filled with God's salvation in our life. It's a little like this. So when I got married, so almost 10 years ago, March 1st of 2013, um, on that day, for the first time in my life, I began to wear a piece of jewelry. Now, I've never wear jewelry, never done necklace rings, anything like that. But on that day, I got this wedding ring. Now, the actual truth is it wasn't this wedding ring. A couple years ago, I was visiting my parents up in Lake Tahoe, and I was riding on like a, like, a, like a tube type situation. And before I got in the water, my mom was like, do you want to leave your ring? I was like, ah, I'm fine. I know better. You see the pattern here, right? And I got into the water, and I'm holding on to the rope. And as it goes, it rips my ring off. So somewhere in the bottom of Lake Tahoe, there's a ring. So this is a replacement one. I digress. Anyway, my point is this. Ten years ago, I got this ring. And this ring is meant to be a symbol of my marriage, Right? Like you see a man or a woman with a wedding ring on and you know what this is. It is a gift from my wife and it is a gift that reminds me of my love for her. It's a gift that reminds me of my wedding vows to her. I want you to imagine the years go on and I start to get really into the ring. Like from time to time, I just hold it in my hand and I walk around, I'm like, hello, hello. And and I'm like really into it, I'm admiring it. I'm hanging out with my wife and she's looking at me and she's like, how's your day? I was like, I'll tell you in a second. 
And I just kind of look at her. She's like, what are you doing? I'm like, stop. I am spending time right now with my ring. I become like this golem creature. He's like, my precious, right? Like I just kind of become into this ring. And suddenly, like, I don't even care about my wife. I'm not even interested in her. I'm not even into what she wants for me. I'm just like obsessed with this ring. And I become so into the gift she gave me rather than the person who gave the gift. That's what sin is in your life. Like, do you know that, like, most of the time when it comes to sin, it's us taking the creation, like what God has given us, and worshiping and serving it over the creator who is blessed forever. That's what Romans 125 says, that we exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the created rather than the creator who is blessed forever. That's sin. Sin is when I become so into this, and here's what sin does in your life. Do you notice what happens? I have a wife and a family, this beautiful world, this beautiful gift that I've been given. And when I get so into my ring and become this golem type creature, what happens? In the end, my world narrows and it narrows and it narrows and it shrinks my world. That's what sin will do to you. It'll shrink your world. God has this beautiful purpose. Again, he made you on purpose and for a purpose. And sin shrinks you down to something so much smaller than the life that God has for you. Again, what causes us to sin? We think wrong thoughts. We're we're darkened in our understanding. And then we harden our heart by justifying or defending or explaining our sin. And then in verse 19, it says this. We'll close here. It says, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are filled with greed. So again, what happens? We think the wrong thoughts, right? Like, we have this thought, I know better than God. I know how to run my life. I don't need God. I don't need his ideas or his rules. So we think the wrong thoughts, and then we feel the wrong things. Our heart hardens. We're no longer soft to the things of the spirit of the word or of God. Instead, we're hardened in our hearts. And then finally, in verse 19, because of that, we do the wrong things. You see these words here? It says, they have given themselves over. That's action kind of word. That's the type of thing where we actually start to give in to these impulses, these temptations, these things in our world, and we actually give ourselves over to them. The language of giving yourself over is not the idea that you just do a thing. To give yourself over is ultimately to submit yourself to a thing. When you give yourself over to sin, I don't want you to think it's just like a choice, and then tomorrow you can make a different choice. See, some of us think of sin like a pizza. Like, what kind of pizza do you want? Well, tonight I want pepperoni. Maybe tomorrow I want cheese. Maybe the next day I'll go meat lovers. Maybe the next day I'll do a little pineapple on top, right? You just think of it as like a choice. Like sometimes I make the choice, sometimes I don't. But the Bible doesn't describe it that way. The Bible doesn't say sin. It's just a choice you make occasionally. What the Bible says is that when we give ourselves over to sin, we submit ourselves to sin. And I want you to write this down if you're taking notes. I want you to know that sin is slavery. It's slavery. You give yourself over to it, and sin begins to dominate and own your life. Sin is not just a choice you make. It is a power you submit yourself to. And when it says here in the text that they gave themselves over to sensuality as to indulge in every kind of impurity, being filled with greed, it's the idea that they have given themselves over to sin, and things are getting worse and worse and worse. And every time I give myself over to sin, it is a trap. It makes things worse. It never makes things better. It's like this. I don't know if any of you guys experienced this, uh, but when I was in high school, um, 
not high school, I'm sorry, uh, when I was really young. Uh, I, we, we go trick-or-treating on Halloween. Now, I got young kids now. Halloween is like peak day of the year, right? You just walk around to every house, and they're like, do you want the one thing you always want, candy? And they're like, yes, that's exactly what I want. So they get candy. And so when I was a kid, we would get the candy. We'd pour it all out on the floor. We'd sort it out. We'd do like a whole trading thing. I had three brothers. So we're swapping things around. We're totally like, like, like we're, we're totally making bad trades with my younger siblings, just getting the best kind of candies. And then we would begin to proceed to eat the candy, right? I don't know if you ever had this, like on Halloween night, you start eating the candy and you're like, this is so good. This is so, this is all I want in life. This is the best day of my entire existence. And then suddenly after you've eaten too much candy, what starts to happen to your stomach? You feel like you're not sure you want to be alive anymore, but perhaps, right? Like that's what happens and your stomach starts to get sour. And so here's what me in my foolish little thinking of like seven, eight-year-old Brian would do. I would eat too much candy. My stomach would feel sour. I would feel terrible. I'd be like, you know what? I actually think what would settle my stomach is a Reese's peanut butter cup. But well, here's why. Because peanut butter is marginally healthy, right? And so it'll offset the Skittles I just ate. So I'll eat a little bit of that. And then I eat the Reese's peanut butter cup and I don't actually feel better. And so you know what I think to myself? I think, you know what? I think Snickers bars have peanuts and those are like a whole natural, I'm not thinking this, but I'm like, okay, I'm going to eat this, right? And so I actually start eating more candy in response to my stomach hurting over more candy. And it doesn't make anything actually better in my life. It makes things worse. And I think all of us are able to look at a seven or eight-year-old kid and be like, you silly, foolish little kid. If your stomach is hurting because of candy, candy is not going to make it better. And yet it is stunning that we are able to look at a kid and say, the thing that made you sick is actually not going to make you better. And yet we have no capacity to do that with our sin. Uh, like, here's what I want you to know. If you are walking in a pattern of sin and you are miserable, that sin will not make you happy. That sin will not bring you out of that misery. Like young man or woman who is looking at pornography. Again, I can just deeply empathize with the pain and the temptation and how deep that can go. And at the same time, I just want to be clear. Um, some of you think thoughts like this from occasion to, to time to time. This is the last time. I'll just do it one more time and then never again. This will be the last time. But you going back to pornography after pornography has already made you sick will not actually make you better. Uh, like maybe for others of you, you have grown up in a house that is just a disaster. And I don't want to take that away from you. Some of you have grown up in brutal, abusive, neglectful, difficult homes. And life is hard, and you are crushed, and it is difficult. And no one in this room knows how much it's been painful. No one in this room has any idea the amount you've gone through. And yet you turn to alcohol, or you turn to drugs, because you think that will make things better. And I want you to know it never makes things better. It only ever numbs it. And makes it worse. Well, like, let me speak to you. Um, I want to speak to the ladies in the room right now. Some of you are single and it kills you. Because you look around and you see all these other people dating and you wonder, am I worth it? Am I good enough? Does anyone love me? Am I pretty enough? Am I good enough? It's fair questions that every young woman goes through wrestling with the things of being a teenager. And yet just far too many times as a high school pastor, I have seen young ladies step into a relationship with guys they have no business being in a relationship with, who are abusive and manipulative and unkind and ungood and who are pushing your boundaries and want something out of you and who are pushing you into places you never wanted to be. And yet for some of you, the pain and the depth of that loneliness, you think the only way out of it is to be with a guy and it can be any guy. And so some of you right now are in a relationship with a guy you have no business being in a relationship with. 
Like God loves you. He calls you chosen and holy and dearly loved. He says you are precious in his sight, and the man you are with does not treat you in that way. And yet you think that's the only way out of the hole of loneliness. And I want you to know it will never work. It will never make things better. It will only make things worse. See, sin is a trap. Sin is a hole. Sin is a prison. Sin is slavery. And when we give ourselves over to it, it never adds to our life. It only takes away. It never benefits us. It only hurts us. It never actually in the long run does anything good for us. It always robs from us. And what does it rob? It robs our peace. It robs our purpose. And it robs our joy. Uh, again, I told you earlier, and I want to say this again to be so clear. There is an every indication in the scripture that your sin will not rob you of your salvation. That is secure in Jesus. But your sin will rob you of your joy. That's why in Psalm chapter 51, David, after he has uh, committed adultery with his wife, and then to cover it up, murders a man, and then lies about it like he's done all the wrong things, here's the prayer of David in Psalm 51. He cries out in repentance, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Like in other words, do you notice what he says? He doesn't say, restore unto me your salvation. David's not going, well, I've lost my salvation, but now I need you to save me again because I did a bad thing. He says, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Like in other words, he hasn't lost his salvation. He has lost his joy, and he wants God to restore that. And this morning, here's how I want to end. I want to end by answering a simple question. How do you get your joy back? Like if you've been walking in sin, if there's been stuff that's accumulated in your life that you have justified and excused and actually thought you know better than God and you don't need his input in your life and that's just piled up in your life and it's robbed you of joy, how do you get that, or that joy of your salvation back? How do you reclaim your joy? And if you're writing down notes, the answer is in two words. I want you to write these two words down. It is the word confession and the word repentance. Confession and repentance. How do you get your joy back? You confess and you repent. What does confession mean? Confession is where we say out loud what we've done. Listen, confession to God is a given. Confess to him. He already knows. God, I've been looking at pornography. God, I've been with a guy I don't deserve to be with. There's no chance this is a good thing for me. God, I've been lying to my parents. God, I've been cheating at school. God, I've been hurting other people. I've been stealing from others. God, I've been doing this. You confess to him. And listen, while confession to God is a given, confession to other people is a gift. It is a gift that helps set you free and brings your joy back. Confession to others, where you sit down with people you know and trust and love and say, I need to tell you something, and it's not going to be pleasant, and it's not going to be easy, but I need to say it out loud, because once you say it out loud, it starts to lose power in your life. Just as this chapel ends, you guys are going to go into cabin time and discussion. And here's what I want you to do. If you have felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit, if God has been like, that's you this morning, don't bury that. Don't harden your heart. Don't push it away. Confess it. Say, this is ugly, and I got to say all this, but here's what's going on in my life, and I feel so terrible, and it's awful, and it's a mess, and it's gross, but here's where I am at. Confess it to your cabin this morning. The best cabin time you could possibly have in the next hour is this, that you would just have a spirit of confession amongst your cabin where you say it out loud. And listen, listen, listen. Don't use euphemisms. Don't be like, yeah, occasionally, I, I, lust is a problem. Say it out loud. You struggle with porn. But like, don't say that, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, occasionally, like, I'm in, I'm in the party scene. No, most weekends I drink until I can't see straight. I pass out and I do it again the next day. Say it out loud. Be specific. Confession to God is given. Confession to others is a gift.
So the first is confession. The second is the word repentance. Repentance. Here's what repentance is. In the Greek New Testament, it's the word metanoia. It was actually used at times in the military in the ancient world. There would be a soldier walking in this direction, marching, and the commander would shout out, repent, or metanoia. And what they would do is they would plant their foot in the ground. They would turn, and they would go the opposite direction. So here's what I want you to know. Repentance is not just feeling remorse. Repentance isn't just feeling guilty or shamed. Repentance is you actually going in a different direction. Repentance isn't just, oh, I feel so bad about my sin. I feel really lousy about it. Repentance is you actually putting your foot in the ground and changing things about your life. What might repentance look like? If sexual sin, if porn's been an issue, re repentance is probably you confessing out loud. Maybe it's you unfollowing certain social media accounts, stop watching certain shows. Maybe you need to not have your phone in your room at night. Maybe you need to get rid of your computer. Maybe you need to tell your parents. Maybe there's something you need to do. It's actual action. It's not just feeling bad, it's doing something. If you've been lying to your parents, you know what repentance looks like? You have not repented of lying from your, to your parents until you go to them and say, Mom, Dad, I've been lying to you. That's repentance. It's actually changing your mind. It is changing your behavior. It's changing how you think and feel and see and hear the world. If you've been in the party scene, you've been drinking, you've been smoking, you've been doing all of that, repentance is you going home and destroying your stash. It's destroying your stash. It's deleting the numbers of the people you go to. It's deciding not to go to those parties anymore, even if you're not going to drink and just going to be there. No, repentance is going a different direction. If you're in an unhealthy, toxic relationship that you know is not leading you to Jesus, is not honoring our Lord, Repentance isn't you just kind of feeling bad about it, but then going back to the guy. Repentance is you actually making the decision to end the relationship. Like it was like eight years ago at winter camp, um, there was a young man who was in a terrible relationship. And I'm not just saying like they had fights, like that's normal. It was like a toxic relationship that was leading him away from Jesus. And he was trying to follow Jesus, and he knew this. And it wasn't the girl's fault. It was his fault. He was giving in to all of these impulses inside of him, and he knew he had to end it. He's known for a while he had to end it, so he comes up to camp, and he makes a decision, and he goes, I need to end this thing. And he's talking about it in cabin time. We're like, all right, all right, man, like, we so understand. We so get it. And so um, we, we break up, and we, we move along, and about an hour later, he, he comes to me. He says, it's done. I'm like, it's done? He's like, I broke up with her. I was like, but bro, she's not at camp. How did this even happen? He goes, no, 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 no. Like, I, I did it. I got to the pay phones over there. Yeah, I called her, and I told her it's over. <laughs> and I was like, oh, man, like, oh, I hope you did it, Grace. Like, I'm so, like, on one end, I'm like, oh, what did you do? But on the other end, I was like, that's it. Like, that's how it's it. To say, like, it's not just like, hmm, I'll feel bad about it and think about it for another six months. It's I'm going to take what God is stirring in me and I'm going to put it into action. If you want to repent this morning, you got to put it into action. you got to actually change things about your life. So here's how I'll end. The final thing I'll say, seven words. Seven words that define repentance. Seven words that define an actually repentant heart. Seven things that would be true about what you would think and feel and see of the world if you've actually repented. Here are the seven words. God is right and I am wrong. God is right, and I am wrong. See, it all goes back to this beginning thing in our mind. We think the right thoughts. We think the right thoughts about God, and the right thought about God is whatever God says is right, he is totally righteous, and I am wrong. I am a sinner. I am in need of repentance. I am in need of salvation. I am in need of rescue. I am someone who needs God to come save me from this pit, the slavery of sin that I am in. The ultimate words of repentance is that God is right, and you are wrong. And I hope in the next hour as you go to cabin time, you will spend time in confession and repentance before your God because that 
is the way you allow God to restore unto you the joy of your salvation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for this morning. Thanks again for your word. I am so aware this morning of the guilt and shame that can be stirred up in this room when we talk about sin like this. And Father, I just pray against the young man who's so crushed by his guilt, crushed by his shame that he can't see your mercy and your kindness toward him, that you call him back into your relationship with you. I pray for the young lady who's so crushed by remorse and regret that she doesn't even know that you call her into something different and love her and see her and care about her deeply. God, I pray that a spirit of confession and repentance would just flourish over this campground in the next hour. God, may that be true of us, not only in the next hour, but throughout the course of our lives. Help us confess. Help us repent. And just as David prays, God, would you restore unto us the joy of your salvation. We pray this in the resurrected name of Jesus. And all God's people said real loud.